Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The MacArthur Foundation names fellows each year for outstanding contributions. They're called geniuses for short. Each recipient receives an $800,000 grant to use however they want. Today, where we live, we talked to one of this year's MacArthur Fellows, Dr. Emily Wong, a primary care physician and researcher at Yale School of Medicine. Her work focuses on how incarceration influences chronic health conditions Coming up, we also learn how the Transitions Clinic Network, which Dr. Wong co-founded, addresses the needs of people recently released from prison. If there's any one single thing in the literature that's compelling is that there's a significantly high risk of dying in the first uh, two weeks uh, following release from a correctional facility. That's Dr. Wong speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Do you have a question for her? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Dr. Emily Wong joins us now on Zoom. She's also director of the Sage Center for Health and Justice to improve the health of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. Emily, welcome to our show. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. First off, congratulations that you are one of the MacArthur 2022 Genius Grant recipients. How does it feel? (laughs) Thanks so much. Hardly a genius. You know, it's a real honor for our team's work to be recognized. And I'm really hopeful that this work is going to bring attention to this critical issue. So thank you. So I've got to ask, when you got the call, or was it an email? How did you get the news? And what was your reaction? Yeah, well, they they had uh, called and I actually don't pick up my phone all that much. And so then got a kind of surreptitious text and ended up on a conversation, uh, you know, for uh, what I thought was going to be a discussion about a a new grant opportunity at MacArthur. And that's when they broke the news. It was a huge surprise. You said a huge surprise. Were you speechless? (laughs) Oh, I, I, you know, I... um, I was really overwhelmed with emotion. I mean, I was in tears almost, uh, you know, kind of thinking about uh, what this meant. And it was really a little bit bittersweet. Uh, We had lost a close colleague and friend this year, and there's no one that would have been more excited about this uh, award. He he should take it as his own, Jerry Smart, our community health worker. And so it just was a flood of emotion. I'm sorry to hear about uh, your loss. Uh, And so you got the call and you got this news and then you had to keep it under wraps. Yeah, yeah. And not super easy. I have a, a big family, but I told my my husband and so um, kind of held the secret tight until that they, they let us uh, share the news. Now, for our listeners, when we think about MacArthur Fellows, uh, this is how they're described, quote, architects of new modes of activism, artistic practice, and citizen science. They're excavators, uncovering what has been overlooked, undervalued, or poorly understood. Their work extends from the molecular level to the land beneath our feet to Earth's orbital environment, offering new ways for us to understand the communities, systems, and social forces 
that shape our lives around the globe. So you're being recognized for your work with the incarcerated, and you're focusing on the health of the incarcerated and the people newly released from correctional facilities. How did you begin this work, Emily? You know, um, I, I became really interested in this during medical school uh, at, at Duke University, and I had the opportunity to um, work in the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women. Um, you know, I, I was interested in in the intersections of health and kind of our um, uh, uh, social systems, and especially uh, those that kind of um, marginalize certain communities. And, you know, it was a random uh, interest at first that grew out of a conversation with a close friend of mine. Um, and in working in the prison system there with young women, just like myself, uh, you know, the same age, I realized that so much of what led them there was fully out of their control. It was about kind of the circumstances under which they were uh, raised, the social uh, systems and policies that we have in existence that kind of limit the choices that young women have, limit the opportunities that they have, and then land them into the criminal justice system. And then during medical school, I also had the opportunity to work in Botswana and um, there worked in the prison system within the capital of Botswana. And that juxtaposition of seeing how cruel and how uh, controlling the U.S. prison system is as compared to the Botswana prison system um, really shifted my course uh, as a medical student. And so entered uh, into internal medicine residency, really interested in understanding more the criminal justice system and specifically the intersections uh, of how we take care of individuals' health uh, and how the healthcare systems are designed. When you talk about uh, mass incarceration and the ways uh, our country treats people who are incarcerated, uh, the systems in place, uh, there is now or has been in, in recent years an emphasis on rehabilitation and helping people transition. But there's still a lot of stigma, Emily, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that from the healthcare perspective. When someone has been incarcerated and they are released, they return to their home community, the barriers they face. This, I think, is a critical issue that often doesn't get enough attention in uh, criminal justice reform conversations or decarceration conversations right now, which is the significant role that the health system can play, but doesn't play, actually, in uh, uh, the, the lives of returning individuals, returning citizens. And so, you know, one of the things that we know to be true is that there's, uh, you know, after having seen thousands of individuals return home as a primary care doctor, individuals that come home into the community that have these chronic health conditions face significant barriers to meeting their basic needs, getting access to food, finding employment, finding a safe place to stay. And on top of that, our health systems are not designed uh, to take care of their health needs. There's nothing intentional about the healthcare. And in fact, I think that there's explicit kind of biases and barriers that are built into the healthcare system. And to give an example, um, you know, many individuals are released without insurance in certain states, without identifications in certain states. And without those, of course, you cannot get a primary care appointment. You can't get seen, you can't get medications. What's more is that there's outright discrimination against uh, uh, individuals who have criminal records in the health systems for accessing care. Um, there was a study done uh, a few years ago which showed that if you called and made an appointment, trying to get a primary care appointment, and mentioned over the phone that you had 
just been released from jail, those individuals had a two times decreased odds of getting a primary care appointment. And this, uh, you know, two times decreased odds. So just by mentioning it over the phone. And you can imagine that that barrier there then might follow a person in all sorts of different other ways throughout the healthcare system as they access care. Mm. Why is that? I mean, when you can you unpack that for us? Because when we hear that, we might think of some assumptions that people have of those who have been incarcerated. But what have you learned through your work, Emily? Well, I, I think that one is just to remember that you know the healthcare system is you know a community of individuals that through our uh, five decades of mass incarceration the stigma of having been incarcerated, what we see on the media, what we read on the internet is pervasive and exists within the healthcare system. And so you can imagine that as healthcare providers and also as front desk you know, individuals, people that work within the healthcare systems, we too live in this culture that has really criminalized um, certain groups of individuals. We too have notions about who is convicted of a crime, what they might have done, and we act on those, whether or not we know it or not. And so I think that that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is that there's a long history of discrimination um, of structural racism within the healthcare system. And I think that this is just an expression of that. Um, One of the things that I think is important to point out is that most um, medical schools Most residencies really don't have a program, a way of training individuals um, about mass incarceration, that there's a whole other healthcare system that exists behind bars, um, you know, where 2 million individuals move in and out of that healthcare system each and every year. 40% of people are newly diagnosed with a chronic condition there, get uh, understand their chronic condition while incarcerated and then come back home into our healthcare system in the community that's just not set up, that's not designed to interface with that other correctional healthcare system. And so these barriers are then just baked into our healthcare system at large. We don't have easy communication between the 5,000 facilities that exist in our community um, the jails and prisons, and our community healthcare systems that exist, you know, at Yale New Haven Hospital, for instance. We don't have, you know, a, a natural process by which we call up um, the providers when a person's incarcerated or when they return home. We don't have electronic health records that communicate. Uh, we don't have ways of really ensuring kind of that these patients that are the most vulnerable um, are taken care of as they move through these healthcare systems. And it's in these ways uh, that also uh, the system in and of itself creates barriers for our patients. You're hearing Dr. Emily Wong here where we live, a Connecticut doctor and researcher named as one of this year's MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant winners. She works to improve the health of people leaving prison who are at higher risk for certain conditions. Emily, you've mentioned chronic health conditions. So can you tell us more about the incarcerated population, the conditions that they have leaving a correctional facility, and some of the barriers, again, to accessing care? Certainly. There, there are, as I'd mentioned, you know, 10 million individuals that are incarcerated each and every year that move through our nation's prisons and jails. And some of the work has certainly uh, found that those individuals have higher rates of chronic health conditions that warrant longitudinal primary care. Um, so, you know, having a doctor follow you over time. And this includes 
what has been in the news uh, lately, certainly substance use disorders, so opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, mental health conditions, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, but also physical health conditions like diabetes, like high blood pressure, a heart disease. It also includes HIV, hepatitis C. So all these conditions are at more common, more prevalent among those that move in and out of jails. Um, what's more, we also know, and I think that this is a real tension, um, it, while there's a real focus on uh, healthcare delivery behind bars and you know, um, studies that have uh, investigated kind of at least anecdotal studies, st news reports, um, it, it focused on the healthcare systems behind bars. What our research has actually shown is that um, compared to when individuals are incarcerated, it's really the transition home, the release that uh, where we find that there's a worsening of these chronic health conditions that I've mentioned, mm -hmm. that there's increased risk of hospitalizations and increased rates of death. And some of what uh, we are hypothesizing at our team, some of the reasons for why this exists are uh, first, the conditions in which uh, uh, the conditions of incarceration, as well as, uh, as I mentioned already, the breaks in care. So again, when you don't have a healthcare system behind bars that then communicates with a healthcare system in the community, what you're going to see is that there's lots of missteps, silly missteps, either medications that aren't continued, medications that can't be refilled, or even worse yet, you know, patients on dialysis that don't get a dialysis appointment post-release, chemotherapy that's broken up and you can't continue in. And so what you see then are a real worsening of chronic health conditions post-release. Hmm. Um, these are augmented, of course, by the fact that people can't get food, jobs and housing. And so all together, this leads to um, a kind of a real disaster uh, when you think about trying to create systems of healthcare that are efficient, that are humane and just. You can join our conversation 888-720-9677 as we focus on uh, connecting those who are formerly incarcerated with uh, access to health care, especially those with chronic health conditions. Again, my guest, Dr. Emily Wong, a primary care physician and researcher at Yale School of Medicine. She co-founded the Transitions Clinic Network. We're going to hear more about that in just a little bit. Uh, Emily, I did want to ask you more about when we think about health care within a correctional facility. It is mandated, but you know, what are some of the harmful health effects of incarceration? What can you tell us? The, the healthcare system behind bars, again, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that drew me to this is that, um, as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has established a legal right to healthcare uh, for people in jails and prisons, and that was established in the 1970s. Um, but what is complicated about it is that the Social Security Act uh, really precludes the use of federal funds for that care. And so what essentially you have is that each individual carceral system uh, allocates its own funding to the healthcare services, and there's very little oversight. So what that means is that behind bars, you don't have systems, uh, you don't have federal funding like uh, Medicare or uh, state and federal supported uh, health insurance like Medicaid, and you don't also have the oversight that uh, accompanies Medicaid and Medicare, so you don't have a joint commission. Um, and what this means essentially is that 
big decisions about the scope of services, the quality of services, the reporting of health outcomes are left to jail and prison administrators whose expertise really lies elsewhere. Um, and so that's one piece of it is that we actually don't know much about the delivery of healthcare system behind bars for these 10 million people that are incarcerated each and every year. The second thing I would say is that um, the uh, system of healthcare behind bars is uh, very different than what our expectations of healthcare are for uh, patients in the community. And I'll just give one example. Uh, we had a patient who had been uh, diagnosed with high blood pressure while incarcerated, and he was diagnosed in his early 20s. And when he was diagnosed in, in the prison system, what it meant was that each and every morning, a correctional officer would wake that patient up, you know, remind him, take him in, uh, to the med line. Um, in the med line, he would receive his high blood pressure medications, amlodipine, lisinopril. Um, he'd have to pop it into his mouth. The nurse would check if he's cheeked it, you know, to see if he's actually swallowed it. He swallows it and moves back to his cell. Um, he never had to learn how to take it himself. He didn't keep the medications on himself. And so you can see that it's a real passive system of care. Um, you know, he doesn't have to call the pharmacy. He doesn't have to figure out what foods to eat. But his adherence is 100%. He'll definitely get the medications. And when you come home, that's not our expectation for a patient at all. We expect the patient that they're going to know, you know, how to take their meds, when to take the meds, going to the pharmacy, making sure that they pick it up, when are they out of refills, call the, uh, the um, provider beforehand. And so you can see is that um, especially if you're the healthcare provider taking care of a patient that's been incarcerated and you don't have any idea what the health system is like behind bars, you might have expectations that the person is, quote, non-compliant, doesn't know how to, is resistant to taking. When in fact, the real tension there is that he was in a health system before uh, that really never taught those skills. And so these are real tensions and differences between the healthcare systems. What we ask of our patients is totally different behind bars uh, than it is in the community. And, and how care is delivered, who oversees the care is totally different. Mm. To your earlier point, Emily, I wanted to remind our listeners that Connecticut's Department of Correction um, has been sued by families for the lack of care their loved ones received while incarcerated. Uh, we did a show back in 2018 about those lawsuits. Some of those suits have been settled by the state. And uh, the late Hartford Current reporter Josh uh, Kovner really uh, shined a light on this issue. Uh, Connecticut, the state of Connecticut ended up severing its contract with UConn Health for health care in correctional facilities. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Emily, when we see what it has been like during the pandemic, and again, uh, families of loved ones who have been incarcerated dealing with the pandemic within these uh, correctional walls, uh, there's definitely a need uh, to, to understand you know, the kind of care that people need, but also to protect them. Despite uh, whatever was in their background, uh, they are in the care now of the state of Connecticut. I'm wondering if you can share what you've heard from people that you and your colleagues have helped once on the outside. I appreciate your bringing up this point, and I and I think that uh, the the key issue, the critical issue that you bring up, is that healthcare systems uh, behind bars often are. Uh, separate from our public health infrastructure uh, at large, separate from our pandemic preparedness structures at large. And it's really that uh, during uh, the COVID pandemic, 
Um, but even before the COVID pandemic, I think what's critical to me in our conversations with patients and families is that there aren't resources that are allocated appropriately, that, uh, you know, carceral systems are often thought of as out there, not part of our public health infrastructure, not part of our healthcare system infrastructure, and thus under-resourced and unable to attend to the health needs of these patients and their families uh, during their period of uh, incarceration. I co-chaired uh, a National Academies uh, of Science uh, consensus report on decarceration during COVID. And one of our primary findings was that across the country um, that, it, even when systems, correctional systems, wanted to do their best to provide vaccines, and there were many examples of places that did so, that did get uh, vaccinations to incarcerated people, that did prioritize um, at delivery of COVID care to incarcerated individuals, they were just grossly under-resourced. And when you looked at the early center of disease control recommendations, when you looked at state pandemic preparedness plans, they often did not have correctional leaders, incarcerated people, family members at the table really thinking about how do we center our public health policies around those that are most vulnerable? And certainly COVID-19 showed us that those who are incarcerated, as well as those who work there, are among the most vulnerable. And this here, I think, is the problem. You're hearing Dr. Emily Wong, a primary care physician and researcher at Yale School of Medicine, co-founder of Transitions Clinic Network. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient this year. Her work focused on improving the health of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. We'll keep talking with her after the break. Also hear from her colleague. Now, have you or a loved one been formerly incarcerated? What support did you need to access health care after returning home? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've talked on this show many times in recent years about the barriers and challenges for those newly released from correctional facilities. My guest, Dr. Emily Wong, works with the formerly incarcerated and has talked about the challenges they face. And so when they come home from prison, they have to learn how to use the pharmacy, learn to get a refill, learn to make their appointments on top of trying to get housing, 
get employed, figure out where to get food for the day. That was from an NPR interview for Morning Edition back in 2016. Dr. Wong is my guest today as we learn more about her work. She's been recognized with the 2022 MacArthur Genius Grant. Her work includes the Transitions Clinic Network. She co-founded a growing national consortium of more than 40 primary care centers serving the health and social needs of individuals recently released from incarceration. Why is this important? Research shows these clinics are associated with lower emergency department utilization, decreased odds of reincarceration, and lower incarceration days. Coming up, we'll hear more from one of Dr. Emily Wong's colleagues. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Emily, that's a clip from, again, an interview in 2016. I started the show uh, hearing you recite a stat in that interview that there's a significantly high risk of dying in the first two weeks following release from a correctional facility six years later. Is that still the case? This is likely still the case. And, you know, I think what's key about uh, the high risk of dying, uh, they're all from largely from conditions that are preventable if the transition were smoother. So uh, the risk of death is driven by overdose, Uh, heart disease, cancer, suicide. And you can imagine that all of these uh, conditions are ones that if people are engaged in care, uh, uh, could largely be prevented. So tell us about how you co-founded the Transitions Clinic Network and some of the work that's being done even here in our state. Back in medical residency at the University of California, San Francisco, I just returned home from, uh, um, again, working within the prison system in Botswana and in North Carolina and started uh, residency really interested in this transition of care. Again, the irony that uh, in the United States, one of the only places where you have a constitutional guarantee is behind bars, but that when people, uh, patients were released from these carceral systems, had these significant gaps in care, I thought this is something that we must and can attend to within the health system. Um, And critical to this work is partnering with people directly impacted by the criminal legal system and had the opportunity to co-found a program uh, with Dr. Clemens Hong in San Francisco at the time. And uh, what we posed to leaders civil rights leaders that had been incarcerated themselves is how best could we design a program within the health system that would attend the risks of transitioning home and also regain and rebuild trust in a healthcare system that has uh, really not done much to do uh, much of anything to earn that trust either behind bars but really important to me is within the community itself i'm a primary care provider i work in uh, the community and we haven't done much and so um critical to the Transitions Clinic uh, network um, is hiring community health workers that have been incarcerated to work alongside primary care teams uh, to provide attend for the social needs as well as the health care needs of people that return home uh, from prisons and jails. I wanted to get another perspective on you know, the challenges uh, that people face when they return home and uh, some of the, the stigma, the bias that Dr. Emily Wong uh, shared with us earlier in the program. With us on the phone now is Lorenzo Jones, co-founder and co-executive director of the Catal Center for Equity, Health and Justice. This group works at the municipal and state level in both Connecticut and New York to build leadership and organizing capacity to end mass incarceration and the drug war. Lorenzo, welcome to our show. 
Morning, morning. Thank you for having me. I checked out your bio. It looks like you're going to be in line for a MacArthur Genius one of these days. <laughs> Thank you again for your time <laughs> on our show. Let's talk more about um, what uh, Emily Wong and her colleagues have been doing in terms of connecting people who are recently released from a correctional facility to health care. From your work, you know, tell us what the experiences are out there for the people that you help. Well, it's interesting. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And as always, Dr. Wong and their team over at Transitions, like we've known them a while. We watch them kind of build that shop, and they do just amazing work. And we worked with them before. Um, we actually connect our staff with them regularly. Um, so I've been around a long time, community organizer, and Dr. Wong's exactly right. You know, um, in Connecticut, you know, we, our, my job in Connecticut, and I'm a black guy who lives, you know, in Hartford. You know, I raise my kids here and family, and all of the things that go with coming out of Generation X '90s, right? So. What we've learned, those of us come out there, is that we all got the same story. The thing that happens in Connecticut when it comes to this, though, is that the problem that we've experienced on the ground with folks coming home, and a, and a good example of this is around, like, HIV. And one of the things that was happening is that people were coming home from corrections positive for HIV, but going into corrections negative. When that information got transmitted to us and the community and the families on the ground that we were working with and that we're working on this was that corrections would not test people going in. I mean, it wouldn't test people coming out, right? And so people were going in negative coming out. And what they were telling us is that black and brown women were the hottest growing number of new HIV cases in like 2004 or five. One of the things that we did at that time was like we, a bunch of families on the ground directly impacted formerly incarcerated folks. And what we found through what by organizing with formerly incarcerated folks is that the people who are next directly impacted, we say, um, to this kind of stuff are the families of formerly incarcerated people. So people, they weren't just talking about re jobs and housing for reentry. Some people are talking about some pretty significant health issues that the the healthcare advocacy space in Connecticut did not account for. They did diabetes, they did lead paint, they did not do like I was locked up for six years or seven years and I now have a medical condition or skin condition. And so what we found out was the original fight had to be not necessarily with corrections in 2002, 3, 4. The fight had to be with the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and a number of policies that have passed in Connecticut that said, for instance, if you were convicted or charged with a mandatory minimum, you didn't qualify for drug treatment programs. But that was a policy passed in 1989, but nobody told us that. So I'll wrap up. But one of the things that transitions and places like that did was they actually took up a mantle of demanding that progressive public health policy in Connecticut accounted for people who were formerly incarcerated that were impacted um, by systemic problems that didn't have access to affordable health care. Prior to them doing that kind of work, most of the advocates for healthcare, medical um, services in Connecticut did not account for formerly incarcerated people and, uh, and ostensibly their families either. Mm. 
Uh, thank you for that, Lorenzo. You know, before uh, we go back to Emily, you know, I have to ask that Catal has really been advocating uh, policymakers, especially in this pandemic, uh, to do a better job of protecting those who are still incarcerated. And I'm wondering if you can just update us on any policies uh, moving forward when we think about, you know, the next public health crisis, uh, how state leaders will respond. So I can, I'm going to answer your question as a community organizer, not as a community leader. And for some people, that's a they don't understand the distinction, but it's a big one. The community leader in me says, oh, you know, there's some important, obvious, forward-facing things that's got to happen. And, you know, like, you know, fine, fine. The community organizer in me says that elected officials don't do anything you don't make them do. And when they do do it, it's only so they can get reelected. So we don't operate with a lot of faith in elected officials. We operate in the states and directly impacted formerly incarcerated and local folks and municipalities to like build power to hold those folks accountable or to replace them if they aren't going to be accountable. And so to, I, this is a thing that gets, that gets buried. It was elected officials and politicians that passed the policies that said you have to go to prison and jail to get health care as a black and brown or rural white person. And so people would joke about going to prison to get their teeth fixed or going to prison because it was wintertime. And these were policies that were backed and held by elected officials. So we don't have a lot of faith that elected officials are going to be the ones that put us around. We got a lot of faith in Dr. Wong, Transitions, Qatar, community-based organizations that are going to hold those places accountable to do their job. Mm -hmm. You've been hearing Lorenzo Jones, co-founder and co-executive director of the Qatar Center for Equity, Health, and Justice. Thank you for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wong, Emily Wong with us. Uh, I wondered if you could respond uh, to what Lorenzo shared. Well, I, I so appreciate your taking the time this morning. And, you know, I just want to echo, I think, critical to what he and Katal are doing is uh, twofold is really kind of saying that we have to decriminalize health conditions, that there is no business that individuals would first get health care while incarcerated, first get substance use mental health treatment while incarcerated, no business that why people go get their teeth done while in prison. And this is a real thing that we have structured, we've seeded kind of what we should be doing as a healthcare system to a carceral system, wherein we should be working towards providing, decarcerating, creating the conditions in our community so folks do not go through prisons and jails. That's first. The second, I think that's of critical importance and is the work of the SAGE Center in general is that we have to lead uh, uh, with, in partnership with formerly incarcerated, currently incarcerated individuals and their families. Um, so much of this work, I think, is just focused on the individuals and even the carceral system. But the truth is, is that mass incarceration um, it is not just about the individuals that pass through the criminal legal system, but also their families and the communities that are over-policed and over-incarcerated. And so um, this, I think, is the source of, of real power. I think that this is also the source of, of transformation within the healthcare system and even how it is that we should be grounding our science to improve uh, these health outcomes. And Emily mentioned the SAGE Center. She's director of the SAGE Center for Health and Justice, again, to improve the health 
of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Transitions Clinic Network that you co-founded. I wanted to hear more about the on-the-ground work that's being done with the Transition Clinic programs in Connecticut. Joining us now is one of your colleagues, Dr. Lisa Puglisi, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine and Director of Transitions Clinic Connecticut. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's, it's an honor to be here with you. You know, I asked uh, Emily how she got into this work. How did you get into this work, Lisa? Um, you know, I if I think about it, it's through many avenues, but I trained at a medical school, uh, Albert Einstein in the Bronx, that was incredibly social-minded uh, and into social medicine, which is really just, I think, what all medicine ought to be, which is understanding people within the communities that they live in the social structures with, within which they find themselves. I don't think you can really practice healthcare without uh, seeing people that in that way. And when I came across um, caring for currently and previously incarcerated people in the um, hospital system during my training here in New Haven at Yale New Haven Hospital, it was uh, so marked how, how distorted those structures were. Um, and how little control I felt that I had and how little influence I, I I felt I had, or I really didn't actually know how to exert any influence on these these things, which felt very out of my uh, medical control. And then I met Emily. Um, and uh, even more than that, I met Jerry, our community health worker, um, who Emily referenced uh, in the beginning of the hour, uh, working with a previously incarcerated man who was a leader, a leader in the community and um, and creating his own leadership within the health system uh, was a really pivotal and transformative experience for me. So tell us more. Uh, you mentioned um, this particular community health worker, you know, the role that they have in helping people newly release, because I would assume that with all the stigma and how the, the way they've been treated by institutions, by systems, there's not a lot of trust there. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about what a typical day is for, for your team working with people in the community. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's very little trust there. Um, and and I think it makes sense. We understand the historical reasons why that is. Um, but really, our, our day and our work ought to start outside of the clinic. So the way we function best and the way through our studies we show that people do the best is when there's that direct communication with the Department of Correction to coordinate their care. Uh, we've spent years working with the Department of Correction in Connecticut with the discharge planners to really make that uh, transition as smooth as possible. It's an imperfect uh, uh, effort. You know, we we try and, and, and there are things that fall through the cracks, but but um, a lot of dedicated inreach and and what ought to happen and what we try to do uh, daily is to really inreach to people before they're released, uh, whether it's through phone calls, um, letters, um, or working with the discharge planner. Um, then when somebody is released and starts accessing community services, the community health worker is really the only healthcare member who's out there in the community, literally. So meeting people where they are, meeting them in halfway houses, meeting them at places of work, meeting them on the green, uh, meeting them in, in shelters, uh, and trying to connect with them, um, tell them a little bit of their own personal story to build some of that trust, and then start to really understand uh, what they 
themselves are going to need. So a real holistic approach to understanding what that person's needs are. We don't assume that everybody needs housing, that not, not everybody does need housing, uh, but but everybody needs something. And it's helping to think think those things through and specifically focus on the ones that we know are the needs that can be really health harming. Um, so that's the community health workers work that starts outside the clinic and then really brings them into our clinic. And Lisa, when you think about what people need, especially for those who have chronic health conditions, you know, connecting them with a the primary care physician, is that something that everybody needs uh, when you're thinking about the different needs of this particular population? The vast majority. So we know that 80% of people in correctional systems have a chronic health condition. Um, and so all of those conditions need ongoing care after their release. So the vast majority. Mm. We heard Emily mention that there is implicit bias and stigma within the health care system when someone especially finds out that a, a potential patient has been incarcerated. And so the challenges of even getting that, that person into an appointment, can you talk more about that? Yeah, we, we do a lot of work. It, it's, it requires health system transformation. So we need to totally rethink and we rework at the health system level how we approach delivering care to this population. What does that mean? It means, you know, if I don't know if you have ever tried to get your own doctor's appointment. I have. It, here's a wait, right? If oh, you're, yes. you're not in in a week or two. But that's a reality that simply... Um, just not going to work for this population and in fact causes serious health harms. And so that reality has to be entirely reworked. We have done extensive work with our community health systems on the ground to get people in within those two weeks. Like if we know that their risk of, of death is those two weeks after release, well, they ought to be seen before then. And we have to redesign our systems to accommodate their needs. We're going to continue talking with Dr. Lisa Puglisi, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and Director of the Transitions Clinic Connecticut, as well as Dr. Emily Wong, who co-founded the Transitions Clinic uh, Network, uh, again, to improve the health of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 10 years ago this week, Superstorm Sandy hit Connecticut. We'll talk about the progress and challenges since Sandy. We hope you can join us. Today, we're talking about efforts to help the formerly incarcerated access health care and manage their chronic conditions. My guests on Zoom, Dr. Emily Wong, a 2022 MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. She's a primary care physician and researcher at Yale School of Medicine and co-founder of the Transitions Clinic Network to improve the lives of and then the health of individuals and communities impacted by mass incarceration. Her colleague, Dr. Lisa Puglisi, is also here, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Yale and Director of Transitions Clinic Connecticut. Uh, Lisa, when we think about the number of patients that these clinics are helping, can you give us an idea? And I understand there's even plans for expansion. Yes, um, it's very exciting. So currently, we are in three communities in Connecticut. We are in New Haven, uh, Bridgeport, and Hartford. 
And we currently can see a couple hundred patients a year between those sites and care for over time, have cared for over time thousands. But the, the breadth of our programs as they currently are is, is inadequate and insufficient for the need of the uh, 10,000 people who are incarcerated in Connecticut at any given time, but thousands more who cycle through that system yearly. And I also want to add that the needs expand beyond what we think of it of in just as in incarceration. So the reach of the criminal legal system is quite quite broad and includes community supervision. So that's people on probation and parole. And in fact, there are about three times more people on probation or parole at any given time in Connecticut than actually incarcerated. But we know that they too have have uh, worse health and and are in need of a really tailored health care. So the population is huge and clearly three small programs, each with one to two community health workers is inadequate to serve all the needs. And that's where we're moving toward expansion. Uh, Emily uh, Leeson was talking about then the difficulty of even finding uh, primary care and appointments that are available. But when we think about uh, those with chronic health conditions, the types of treatments and medications they need, what are the challenges accessing that and who pays for it? Um, oh, go ahead, Emily. Go ahead. Sorry, Lisa. You know, I, I, I was going to say that, uh, you know, in Connecticut, we're fortunate. We're a state where uh, Medicaid was expanded under the Affordable Care Act. We're also a state where uh, prior to even the Affordable Care Act passing, uh, there were intentional efforts to make certain that those that qualified for Medicaid were put on Medicaid prior to release. And so in large part, uh, the healthcare system services, including medications, are paid for uh, by Medicaid and patients that come home with these many chronic health conditions, diabetes, hypertension, opioid use disorder can then receive uh, insulin, their blood pressure medications, and buprenorphine all through Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And Lisa, real quick, when we think about expansion or expanding to other cities like Waterbury? Uh, absolutely. So the Prison Policy Initiative just uh, uh, published an analysis in the last month or so that identified the six uh, locations in Connecticut that have about that are home to about 50% of of the population of incarcerated people. That includes not only New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport, where where we already are, but also Waterbury, New Britain, and New London. Uh, but I think it's also important to stress for your listeners who are saying, "Well, what does this have to do with me?" That 50% of the incarcerated population came from elsewhere in the state, and there was essentially uh, almost no county which was spared. Emily, we just have a, a few minutes. Again, we just heard from Dr. Lisa Puglisi again, who's director of Transitions Clinic in Connecticut. Uh, when we think about the role of community health workers, is this how patients are finding the clinic, Emily? This is uh, that community health workers um, are, because they've been incarcerated themselves, they've been uh, uh, successful in returning home, I think are the key link to really bridging kind of two healthcare systems that don't connect, uh, the correctional healthcare system and the community healthcare system. Um, our goal really uh, is that there's seamless care between the two systems, but I think even if with seamless care, even if let's say the electronic health records and the providers are communicating, because of the discrimination, because of the stigma, because of the history of racial violence in this country, 
critical to, I think, building trust, establishing different norms of practice are, are individuals, family members who've been incarcerated themselves, and it's they who really are leading this. Kathy shared, I appreciate the systemic issues being raised by Dr. Wong this morning. Kathy writes, we really must look at the ways in which our systems address problems by locking others up in a box for years, whether that's a jail, prison, or psychiatric facility, instead of prevention efforts. When people return to our communities, as most do, Kathy writes, they need and deserve support for that transition. We just have about two minutes left. Uh, Dr. Emily Wong, you know, as a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, you do get $800,000, no strings attached. Anything you want to share with our listeners about your plans? You know, I think the plans of the SAGE Center, which uh, we've spoken of briefly, it's a collaboration between the School of Medicine and the law school, is uh, really trying to think about how it is that we provide the support structures necessary for community transformation. As Kathy mentioned, you know, the key is prevention. The key is really thinking about how it is that we um, honor those who have been impacted by uh, mass incarceration, bring them into the solutions uh, that we need to really fortify our communities. And so our SAGE Center is really turning attentions to how it is that we can decarcerate. Uh, an example of this is a project that we just launched um, run by Dr. Brita Roy at the SAGE Center and Ms. Virginia Spell of the Urban League of Southern uh, Connecticut. And they are studying um, what the impact of giving home loans, uh, financial assistance, and education and counseling uh, to family members whose loved ones are incarcerated, um, how it is that rental support um, may affect community kind of conditions, including those uh, that promote health and safety. So these supports are where we're turning our attention to now. Thank you for that. And Emily, that uh, amazing grant that you received, you're still thinking about it? <laughs> Yes, yes. And so really, it's about kind of how it is that we leverage, uh, you know, the the people that are all around me, the uh, real kind of experts, formerly incarcerated individuals, um, to help transform our healthcare systems. And that's where I think that this uh, award and grant will go. Well, we it was a pleasure to speak with you to learn more about your work. Dr. Emily Wong, again, a primary care physician and researcher at Yale, co-founder of the Transitions Clinic Network. Thank you again, Emily. Thank you. And also with us, your colleague, Dr. Lisa Puglisi, Director of Transitions Clinic Connecticut. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer today is Dylan Reyes. We'll be back tomorrow.